And it's almost always the case that it was never one thing. It was several things that put them so close to the edge and then something quite, quite minor can push them over the edge. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. I'm really excited to bring you this interview with Marek Doyle, a functional nutritional therapist who has worked with over 2,000 individuals to heal metabolic issues, hormonal and neurotransmitter imbalances. Marek is regularly featured across the media and he humbly claims not to be an oracle with any special powers, but his results speak for themselves. If you've struggled with metabolic or hormonal issues or suffering with stress or exhaustion or just feel like something is off, then I think you're going to get tremendous value from this interview. So without further ado, let me introduce you to the amazing Marek Doyle. Hi Marek, it's great to have you here today. How are you doing? All good this end. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining me today. Um, I'm very excited to quiz you on a whole host of stuff. I have a big long list here. Um, But let's start by introducing you to the listeners um, about your background, because I know that you specialize in nutritional therapy um, and that you've also had, not only have you worked with, I think it's over at least over 2000 patient outcomes, um, and 9,000 test results. Pretty impressive when I was looking at your biography. But you've also had your own metabolic issues, fatigue and brain fog. So you've got personal experience to draw on there. So can you just give us a little bit of background about you, first of all? Sure. Yeah. So I started as a nutritional therapist back in 2006. And at the time, I was mainly working uh, with members of the public, but also athletes. And the focus was very much on performance and fat loss um fat loss and performance that was pretty much all i was doing and i was actually very happy with how things were going in the main uh very happy with the results i was getting for fat loss and that was uh something that uh was very much drawing in uh, the punters but there was definitely that one big question always left in my mind why is this working for a big chunk of the individuals I'm working with, and yet we're seeing others just stall. And as it happened, uh, I was training quite hard for Muay Thai uh, to compete, so the, the sparring was pretty intense. Meanwhile, of course, I'm building a business, and it's fair to say that in the natural healthcare world it's uh, not the best paid in the first few years when very few people know that you exist um so yeah the the, the stress and strains of building the business the life stresses which i didn't even recognize at the time uh but then the obvious ones like training late getting up early to uh yeah do uh earlier morning sessions pretty much all the things that i recommend people don't do and yeah one day in sparring i got a very solid kick across the ear and uh it rocked me but it didn't feel like it was the biggest deal but the next morning i woke up with an itch in uh, my ear and uh, went to scratch it and i was managing to do so from a couple of inches away from the usual position of my uh, my ear because it had swollen up with a blood blister and uh and it also happened that was the day that i just felt so weak um huge difference to the day before that was the straw that broke this camel's back and it was a case of let's go and get check up at the doctor let's see what's what and yeah there was certainly no answers other than uh being told how healthy i looked and that uh, actually I should maybe uh, not set my standards so high to want to feel normal. So yeah, that was um, the first adventure into having to piece together, well, what the hell is going on? And I found my answer in testing my adrenals. There was quite a lot of testing that I did there, a lot of blind alleyways that led nowhere, as you can imagine. 
did my research online, saw a list of symptoms for various issues. And sure enough, that all matches what I'm experiencing. But the treatment went nowhere. Uh, various test results indicated, no, this is definitely not it. So there definitely was a real frustrating period where I couldn't work out what was going on. But uh, between sorting the adrenals, taking some magnesium, wow, what a difference that made. And so, uh, yeah, that was my first um, forced learning experience. And from that, I came away with a really nice um, concept of how the adrenal function can play such an important role across the metabolism. Started to spot patterns in the majority of these non-responders I was working with. And lo and behold, testing their adrenal function was just producing big wins in a whole load and the side effects are so interesting. Yes, they were obviously now getting the fat loss results they wanted, but a lot were reporting a very similar pattern. I didn't realize it wasn't normal to feel that way mid-afternoon. I didn't realize that my sleep was so mediocre. I thought it was good. And so, yeah, it was, it was fascinating to actually collate the experiences of so many people as a means of uh, logging how the role of the adrenals can impact on the body in such a diverse number of ways. But also it was then the transition to the next phase, which is, okay, well, a good chunk of the non-responders have now began to respond by supporting the adrenals. But there's still a chunk within that that are still not responding, which of course is then we look at uh, going deeper and deeper and deeper. So yeah, that was uh, very much uh, how this all kicked off. Interesting. And so um, in terms of the adrenals, because I guess this is where um, it's difficult, isn't it? People are pushing themselves really hard, like you were at that time, mm. um, like I did back in the days of, of corporate law. And I think there's a sense, certainly under, you know, among Taipei personalities, is that you can continue to push, to push. I've always been okay. I'll be fine until, as you say, you kind of wake up one day and it doesn't happen overnight. I'm sure there were signs that you were ignoring, but you wake up one day as a result, yours was initiated by an injury. And then suddenly you realize, well, I'm not actually as well as I thought. And I had a very similar experience to you. Um, one of the most frustrating things for me when I was diagnosed actually with postnatal depression was I was being told, well, don't do so much. Again, like you were, you're expecting too much of yourself. And actually that's incredibly frustrating for somebody who passionately enjoys what they do and really wants to kind of give back and achieve um, and be that kind of giving person. So for people that maybe, how can they anticipate this happening in the beginning? Like we know we can talk in a moment about the lifestyle measures, but what might be warning signals to somebody that actually they're beginning to push their stress levels too high, they're pushing their adrenals too hard? What, what's the step back before it all starts to cascade? Well, it's a really interesting question because I guess the first thing I should mention is that I've never observed on a live basis um, that that process of feeling a little overly burdened, but generally fine, going from that state to the crash. Mm. Apart from, of course, in myself. Um, I only get to speak to people afterwards, but it is fascinating to piece together similarities in so many stories. And in most cases, it was n people will typically look at a single incident as the moment that they crashed. Mm -hmm. and so often it is catching a cold. Uh, as in my case, uh, for some, it was a, a physical injury. Other times it might be a sustained spell of stress. They're by far and away the most common triggers that, that launch people into a sustained spell of, of chronic illness. And what has always been fascinating for me is to consider not necessarily what pushed somebody over the edge, but why they were so close to the edge of the cliff in the first place. Mm. So in That's what I mean, yeah. 
Yeah, we're looking now at uh, potential nutritional shortages, which maybe mean that their immune, uh, immune responses are slightly distorted. Their immunoregulation is, is disturbed. They're much more likely to over-respond to threats. But hey, what's the big deal? Um, they probably feel a little bit of reduced brain power by the end of the day, but hey, who doesn't? Uh, maybe they're just not so fresh in the morning, but obviously it's nearly the end of quarter. Of course, they're working hard. Of course, they're going to be uh, feeling a little bit under the weather. So no big deal. Maybe they have a fall. Maybe you know, their lifetime of knocks and hits at the back and the neck and the hip joints and all of these things and starting to catch up with them and this this additional hit means that well as long as they don't do that one position in yoga well cool that's that's not a problem just avoid that um maybe that's again putting them closer to the edge maybe that means their sleep quality isn't so good maybe that means that they're going to see a little bit of modification of their metabolism to compensate for it and Typically, we're going to see defensive responses. We're going to see it's more difficult now to learn to, to burn fat than it was. Mm -hmm. it's, it takes them a little longer to go to sleep than it once did. Um, they just get a little bit of heartburn, whereas they never used to get that. They get a little bit of bloating, maybe some intestinal gas. But hey, as long as they just don't eat beans, then, then they're okay with it. Maybe they get wired from coffee. So maybe as long as they just don't drink the coffee anymore, uh, maybe they feel flat, but if they just do a 10K run every morning, then they can stay alert all day. Often we see that it's only in hindsight that people piece together that there was a rising tide of compensations that eating themselves are all subtle, but showed that their metabolic response was not what it used to be mm. but hey there's actually bigger fish to fry right now because there's still 27 unread emails and you know we need to have this done before the meeting at 3 p.m on friday and so yeah that ultimately leaves people really close to the edge of the cliff and it's almost always the case that it was never one thing it was several things that put them so close to the edge and then something quite quite minor can push them over the edge yes the, and then it is that final straw isn't it that breaks the camel's back and i think what i see and, and it sounds like you see the same thing is people um at first they don't want to really accept that this is going wrong and so it's almost the belief that well, I just need to push harder. Maybe I'm just not pushing hard enough. It's like you said, well, maybe my energy won't be great unless I've done a 10K run in the morning. Whereas actually you never used to have to do that much physical activity to mm. really get yourself going. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think we all do push so hard. And I think the thing that we underestimate is the value of recovery. And if you look at the true kind of high performers, athletes, I always think, that if we were all to treat ourselves like a world-class athlete, our approach would be very different because they do focus on recovery and they do focus on sleep and all the things that we just think, well, I'll get to that. I'll have that holiday, as you say, at the end of this quarter or in six months time and, and I'll get there and I'll recover. But actually it's that daily recovery that's as important as anything. Um, what do you find? I mean, at the moment, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I think many people in the current environment, we're recording this during the social isolation period, that for some people, they're working from home and it's all working out fine and they're still paid the same income. For many people, um, even at the very high levels in terms of leadership, are actually having to take significant pay cuts. They've got children, like I've got three children at the moment that we're having to quote unquote homeschool because schools aren't open. Um, and it's very hard to 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 keep going with everything, but sometimes you just have to. What would you say are the most important things that people should be looking at? Now, when we were talking before, you mentioned blood testing, for example, certain minerals. People can do these at home, actually, with companies like Medichecks, um, yeah. even with a fingerprint testing, and get an idea for things like key minerals like magnesium and looking at things like B12. What would you say if people want to start taking responsibility ahead of time that, in your view, they could look at and preempt that? Well, uh, so there's 
there's one very obvious test that stands out, which would be just to track heart rate variability and sleep cycles. Mm -hmm. uh, now, they can be done with mobile phone apps, which make them super accessible because it's very rare to find anyone without a smartphone. Uh, they can be done with the Aura Ring, which generally is substantially more convenient, especially for the sleep tracking. Um, and there's a number of other devices that will allow people to do that. But yes, when you consider between a sleep tracking app and a heart rate variability app, that's minimal outlay. There's no difficulty in obtaining those readings. That's a great start. Uh, heart rate variability, we can probably touch on that in due course, but it's a great measure of how active is your stress response. Mm. Uh, it, it, it tracks the, the rise and fall within the heart rate, which is very, very natural. We should always have a rise and a fall. But what's particularly interesting, it's that intake of breath that activates the sympathetic nervous system that gets us more vigilant, gets our heart rate up, and then the parasympathetic is activated on the breathing out, which should calm us right down. So there should be that up and down, unless, of course, we're seeing that sympathetic dominance. We no longer see that variability. So that's a really simple thing, very well correlated over four decades of research, especially with athletes. But now, of course, the individuals focus more on health optimization are starting to make really good use of that. So that's just one thing that... Anybody. Before you go on to the next thing, can I just interject there? Because that's actually really interesting that you mentioned that. Because I've been looking at my own heart rate variability with my aura ring very closely recently. And uh, I noticed that a very simple change uh, to my evening routine. So recently, my children and I have been sitting down and actually all reading Harry Potter books together. And they challenged me. I hadn't read the Harry Potter series. Come on, mommy, you've got to read it now. And so I started, I very rarely read fiction. So I love kind of keeping up to date with things. And so I'll read a lot of nonfiction all based around health optimization. And I think I'd underestimated how much that was still keeping me very much engaged in work mode. Mm -hmm. So now since reading Harry Potter and actually something fictional that's completely outside what I do for a job, uh, my heart rate variability has pretty much doubled in terms of what I get on the Aura Ring, just through that one simple change, which is really interesting. It just shows you how much that's relaxing and, as you say, engaging my parasympathetic nervous system. Well, it is amazing to see, yeah, the before and the afters because there's pretty much two things that I'm going to use the heart rate variability figures for with the people I work with. Uh, one is first to establish expectations uh the the heart variability gives us a really good idea as to where where does this individual's aims where are their metabolic aims leaning towards are they in homeostasis a uh, state characterized by metabolic balance and the available resources to tend to the challenges that crop up and to invest in the opportunities that actually satisfy our evolutionary desires, generally survival and replication. So in that homeostatic state, wonderful. These are individuals that I'm very unlikely to see, of course. Um, then there's that middle ground, allostasis, which is clearly a state of balance, but it's one where compromises have needed to have been made. So it's one where it's not a simple case of where do we send the resources, it's to what extent can we send these resources and where do we take them from. So, so it's a balance and it's, it's one that automatically obligates the body to make some compromises. And typically you will see that in a reduction in investments in immune response, in digestive activity, or in any area that's particularly uh, energy intensive. So I'm very much looking here at the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which doesn't really help uh, as much as we think when it comes to surviving. 
mean, sure, it's, it's great to help us think, to work out, to construct timelines, solve problems, and also massively involved in mood. So yes, wonderful to have a brain that works and to feel good, but if that doesn't necessarily help you survive, it makes it a great candidate to be downregulated. So, I mean, I've just touched on a few examples, uh, but just in those few areas, we start to see why people might pick up a few more colds. They might find a few digestive issues, a few little agitations start to creep in. And equally, yeah, they don't think as well as they previously did. They finding themselves umming and ahhing when they were previously so sharp. So yeah, that's a perfect example of allostasis. It's a balance. They're fine. They can do what they want to do, but there's just some, there is a cost to be paid. And then of course there is astasis, total lack of balance. You could easily call this emergency mode. And that would be a point at which there is a hijack. Uh, and typically we'd expect these hijacks to be conducted by the limbic system in the brain to prepare the body for fighting or running or dealing with some immediate physical threat or by the immune system in regards to dealing with a perceived threat to life from microbial infection. But, uh, but at this point, there's no longer any regulated distribution of resources it is a a direct survival attempt which automatically is going to come at disproportionate costs it's mm -hmm. now absolutely forgetting about tomorrow at the expense of, of staying alive today and that's when you'd see their heart rate variability would be very flat there wouldn't be much variation at all in between those beats you know, the very right. engaged at this point yeah, so the heart rate variability, the, the higher the variability is, the more balance there is in, in line with what we mentioned just exactly. previously. And so it's really interesting, and I'm really interested in hearing from other practitioners, other individuals in regards to their own experiences, because there's certainly some patterns that are emerging um, in, in my clinic and the, the audits that I'm doing on people's trajectories, their responses, um, and how the heart rate variability, when we see the, uh, the figures, the RMSSD, the root mean squared of successive differences, when we see that value at 35 or below, that does seem to have some sort of tie-in with that emergency mode. Below that, we're, I'm not seeing any individuals respond in the same way to those that are consistently above that figure. And equally, round about that 80 RMSSD level, that may be a threshold for where we actually have sufficient resources to fully invest in those any intensive processes. There's, there's no... Uh, there's no line in the sand where compromises may be made. So I, I want to be clear that those are very much preliminary. I haven't run a statistical analysis because I need to collect that and actually organize that data in a much more um, appropriate fashion. But uh, yeah, I, I hope by the end of 2020, I should be able to have, have done that and have something that's much more useful to share with other practitioners. Um, but, but certainly it, it seems important to um, provide those uh, initial, initial ideas. That's interesting. So because also, would you say, though, that heart rate variability varies even between individuals, even if you were to take two people who were in more of um, the homeostasis, more of a balanced mode, some may have higher heart rate variability than others. Um, because I know like you can see some pretty healthy people on Instagram, doctors and things and functional medicine practitioners who are like, actually, my heart rate variability is still quite low. No one seems to fully understand why that might be. So have you, have you found that in terms of the research that you're doing that actually just some people are on the lower side anyway? So this is, the, I think, the most interesting one. I'm not seeing that in okay. the population uh, that I work with. I do see some distortions. If anyone has fibrillations or palpitations, suddenly, you know, 
the, the whole usage of the heart rate variability becomes flawed. Uh, so we sometimes see that those fibrillations trick the algorithms in the software into generating really high figures. So you end up with this individual who's stuck in fight or flight, super anxious, can't sleep, and their figures come back to say, oh, you're one of the most relaxed human beings on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> Those are obviously... Naturally they're experiencing rhythm or something like that. <laughs> exactly. So they do have this massive alterations in mm. the heart rates. And yes, there is high variability, but not for the right reasons. Um, so yeah, there, there is that, that issue. But what I think is really important to consider is that what if there are individuals who either A, simply have low values um, and it's just absolutely not um, indicative of the the load on their, their central nervous systems in those particular individuals well in those particular individuals they're likely to go through life with these low hrv scores and there isn't much of an issue so of course i'm not going to see them so mm -hmm. that may well be a, a pattern worth investigating equally what if they are under this huge burden, but those are the, the athlete types of this world? And what constitutes somebody like me um, from a professional athlete? The single biggest factor is the ability to tolerate inhumane levels of stress. Mm. I know from bitter experience, there's a point at which my metabolism says no. Uh, what's always fascinated me about working with athletes is that on average, of course, it's always on average. On average, the professionals and semi-professionals seem so capable of taking the most ridiculous stress loads and not, not dropping. Mm. Um, there's, there's a number of interesting hypotheses that that leads on to, and there's been uh, a number of papers I've read over my time that indicates there's something to do with the metabolic defense response and and how that athletes simply don't defend their fat stores in the same way they don't defend their their, their physical uh, metabolic uh, machine in the same way with the stress response and that's why that independently of head injuries and so on and so forth that athletes often have a a lower life expectancy. That is purely a hypothesis that I'm throwing out because I find it interesting. Um, but to, to get back on topic, these individuals who are capable of living their lives under immense stress and it just not manifests as any issues. We should be very aware of that possibility um, because yeah, those are individuals that aren't gonna make it to the clinic and so we can end up extrapolating the results that I see in clinic with the general population. And one thing is very clear, the people I'm seeing are not representative of the general population. So that, that works in two ways. Not only can we not extrapolate the observations I'm making in this specific population, but also when it comes to looking at research done on 24 healthy volunteers provided uh, yeah, their, their blood samples before and after a particular intervention. What relevance has that got to individuals who are four decades older, have been suffering from chronic inflammatory diseases for most of their lives? They're just totally different population. It, it works both ways. So, yeah, that's understanding the limitation of that research in application to my population that's important but also the other way very mm -hmm. sure so what are you so when you're looking at obviously you mentioned the tracking heart rate variability i mean i do that with an aura ring as far as i know you can't do that without a heart rate strap you can then use certain apps can't you in the morning where you get a morning hrv reading with something like the polar heart rate monitor you can hook that up to apps that that actually you do need some device don't you to to measure that without just a mobile phone although sleep cycles something like the sleep cycle app works very well to see it's not going to be as accurate, but it'll give you an idea. Are you waking up at night? Are you getting into deep sleep? 
Yes, and of course, you know, those sleep tracking apps that use a mobile phone, they, they're always going to suffer from the potential for inaccuracy because what if uh, you are to lie in bed staring at the ceiling perfectly still, you'll trick the phone into thinking you're in deep sleep because mm. they're based on motion. But, um, but yes, one thing that is probably worth mentioning is that um, the, the PPG technology that the Aura Ring uses, well, that can be uh, obtained via camera phones. So that's where the app uses the, the camera to image your pulse and your finger. Oh, yes, upon waking, I've seen that. The highs and the lows, thus it's able to establish a rhythm. And there's actually double-blind research on the validity of those apps and the the use of the smartphone. And, of course, sometimes I suspect there's certain devices that may be suspect. But, yes, the, the technology itself has been shown to be almost as good as the heart straps and certainly good enough for us to make use of. Sure. Okay. And so measuring heart rate variability is one thing. You've talked about those numbers that at the moment, your preliminary research seems to indicate that if it's 35 or below, then you're potentially too sympathetically engaged and you may run into problems because immune response may be downgraded and other metabolic functions in the body. And then at sort of 80, um, that's a good average to show that you're in homeostasis. What are the things that you found? Let's say that someone's beginning to measure their HRV, they're interested in making sure that they're optimizing their health. What have you found, um, things like exercise, breath work, or anything else you've found that have, um, maybe reading some fiction like myself, that have improved heart rate variability in individuals? What can move the needle the most? Oh, good question. Well, yeah, here we go. Let's let's go down that rabbit hole so i think that maybe this is an area which is a really good representation of how i think the way we work with clients can be improved because it is categorically not the case that i could sit down with a group of clients all showing very similar low readings telling me that they're particularly stressed and say, right, I want you all to take some ashwagandha. That will calm you down. Or I want you all to now take some theanine or 5-HCP before you bed because that will calm you down. Um, or, yeah, right, everybody go and do breath. Start meditating. Um, because, A, there's multiple ways that the heart rate variability is... Well, let's forget the heart rate variability for a second. There's multiple ways that our sympathetic nervous system is going to be activated. Mm -hmm. So we know that ultimately all the limbic system is doing, or all it's doing, is continually on a second by second basis uh, waiting for sensory input uh, that may tell us some important information that requires an immediate response. Is this food or non-food, potential mate or non-mate, or most importantly in this instance, danger or non-danger. And so in that sense, we're starting to look down uh, at the exquisite connections that the limbic system maintains to do this job. So not only are we looking at the, the raw sensations it's receiving, but we're also looking at certain areas of the brain, the default mode network, which provides us with meanings, which places a sticker on each one of these incoming sensations to indicate whether this is dangerous or not. And, and it's fascinating how the default mode network is associated with our identity, with our ego, because it would appear that the meanings it provides is very much in line with, uh, what does this mean for me? Mm. So actually, um, not only does it explain why certain plant medicines can actually uh, work by 
specifically inhibiting the default mode network, but also why excessive default mode network activity might be so well correlated with depression and anxiety conditions. Um, but I digress, we, we've got input in terms of adding meaning to these sensations from certain brain areas. We've got memories in our hippocampus which can say, hey, remember, actually, this needn't be a concern, calm down. Then there's also this, this seesaw regulatory effect from the prefrontal cortex. We know that there's a whole number of neurons that come in to that limbic system to just calm the whole thing down. Um, so, you know, we, that's such a um, skeletal uh, uh, conversation in regards to what impacts on the limbic system. But I just wanted to, to touch on that because if there's anything that influences energy metabolism in the prefrontal cortex, we would expect that individual to be unable to fairly regulate their limbic response. If there's anything that's damaging the, the role of the hippocampus, long-term cortisol exposure, well, we would expect that to influence the individual's ability to, uh, to, to, to have that reminder of safety. Um, equally, yeah, default mode network and the beliefs that we will take on. Nikki Gratrix does a great job of uh, showing how the rules and the meanings we accumulate in the first four years of life can have such a massive impact on overloading that limbic response. Um, and equally, above and beyond the roles of the energy there, the, the, the hormonal status, the, um, the sculpting of our, our personalities, belief systems, so on and so forth in childhood, then we're also looking at things like inflammation, the way inflammation not only activates certain parts of the brain, the anterior insula for one, but, but is so well uh, characterized for its potential. It's not, not automatic, but it can potentially drive excess glutamate signaling. And glutamate is a very important neurotransmitter that switches the brain on. So hugely important for healthy brain function and learning and sentence construction and solving problems. But at excess levels, it's going to result in too much of a signal arriving. Mm. So inflammation can massively result in the net quantity of input into the limbic system. Um, and yeah, we haven't even considered the role of the, the, the gating system performed by NMDA receptors in the brain, which have a huge uh, dependence on oxygen delivery energy availability, magnesium status. But I, I just wanted to take a very brief uh, <laughs> wading through that <laughs> uh, cerebral quagmire, just because there's so many things that can influence our limbic system being activated. Um, and that's why there are a lot of individuals who I could just load them with as much theanine or valerian or passion flower or any other sedative herbs and amino acids. It's not going to do a thing because that just wasn't what was their issue. Maybe their issue is the fact that you know, their lifestyle is so incessantly triggering that ongoing response. Mm. But equally, there's other individuals that no matter what they change in their lifestyle, they won't see a change because for them, the rate limiting factor is inflammation. And that just absolute uh, tidal wave of dysregulated inflammatory cascade, which maybe starts with mast cells degranulating, suddenly that's releasing the shed load of inflammatory mediators, which now activates their brain's immune system, at which point we've transitioned into, yeah, a very different situation. Now their brain's neurochemistry's hijacked and we see often these self-perpetuating cycles where, where there's excessive glutamate because of that inflammation and mm -hmm. its impact on the, the microglia. That glutamate is enough to over-agitate neighboring cells to such an extent they become injured and that requires more of an inflammatory response which requires more glutamate. And you, you can see where this is going. 
Yeah, sure. And I mean, it comes about your cycle. In essence, yeah, I, there's a lot of common um, common avenues that I would look at when it comes to helping individuals with their sympathetic activation. But in every case, it's always about what is the rate limiting factor for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. But I mean, I think, I think what you said there is helpful because I think people can be, begin to understand what might be a rate limiting factor for them. I think though that um, if, if we set aside that there is, if there isn't a fundamental issue that's, that's come up during childhood, for example, that needs some psychological intervention or reprogramming on an unconscious level, um, or we put aside that there's a huge kind of inflammatory cascade going on and we're looking at people who are really just maybe pushing themselves too hard, maybe the demands on them at this point in time are so high because you know they've got kids at home they're having to maybe make redundancies within their company they've they've got so much um, emotional financial and just general day-to-day -day stress going on then i think there are if we go back to where we started in terms of hrv there are practices that you've alluded to there that are things like um, getting enough oxygen, making sure, you know, focusing on your breathing, making sure that you've got some wind down time, make sure you've got good sleep hygiene. And also, I think importantly, there is this um, idea of inflammation is make sure that you have an anti-inflammatory diet and that you're not kind of stocking up on lots of processed vegetable oils, or maybe that, you know, I often see, and this happens a lot with, um, with entrepreneurs as well, for example, is they almost see it as self-sabotage, but they're kind of, they're getting sugar cravings. They're under so much stress that they're finding some comfort in, um, in food. And actually that's just driving further inflammation, further blood sugar dysregulation, higher cortisol is understanding. But I think people can begin to understand what's inhibiting it. Um, even without doing actual testing by looking at what patterns of behavior they've got, journaling, understanding what's going on themselves. And then obviously if there's a real issue there, then they need to see someone like yourself who can actually really dive into the detail. Yeah. And I think that everything you've mentioned is so logical. Um, I think it's difficult for me to offer any authoritative uh, conclusions on what should healthy people do uh, to avoid falling over the edge of the cliff because as I mentioned I actually don't have 15 years worth of data mm. to uh, provide clarity on here's the three most effective things on average in those instances what I can certainly speak on is those individuals who have noticed that certain areas of their life, they're seeing these symptoms because that is a really, really relevant um, thing. And it, our bodies are consistently communicating with us, especially in regards to pain and fatigue, which of course are simply evolutionary messages. They, they only exist because they have aided our survival at some point during the evolutionary journey. We can't measure them, we can't see them, we can't touch them, but they're very, very real when they kick in. So in that context, it's, I think, the single most useful thought pattern I would like to, to leave those individuals who are just getting these signs is that, yeah, the... the you can't supplement your way out of fatigue. You can't eat your way out of fatigue um, because fatigue is a sensation. The question is, you know, what can you change so that your central nervous system doesn't feel obligated to produce that sensation? Because these, these pain and fatigue um, sensations, in all instances, these are going to only help our survival as a result of changing our actions. That's their entire purpose. It's a message which obligates us or at least demands that we change our actions. Either start doing something that we're not doing or more often stop doing something that we are doing. Mm. So, yeah, that, that fair observation, uh, which isn't necessarily convenient because it may well mean that we can't actually work for 16 hours a day 
and then do all uh, the domestic uh, goddess or god chores uh, and get the sleep and remain uh, healthy, function, able to exercise, so on and so forth. Something's got to give. And so in that instance, yes, if you're getting those signals, the first thing's got to be, when are they occurring? After what part of the day, after what activity, after what time of the week are they occurring? How do I feel when I stop? Can I stop? Because it is fascinating how many individuals will sit, relax, and find the process of relaxing quite stressful. Mm. Yeah, I think that's very common. Yeah, I don't have the answer as to why that is, because it is clearly going to be different from one person to the next. But it's a question that must be asked, because if you don't stop, your body will eventually stop you. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I've definitely been on the other side of that, as have you, I think. Yes. Um, before you um, go, let's talk briefly on um, inflammation, because I think it's um, um, not a widely understood area. And we know that that and blood sugar dysregulation are two of the main causes of many of the chronic diseases that we're seeing. And I think inflammation is often silent. People aren't aware of it and they may begin to get symptoms like you've um, mentioned there in terms of they may experience some brain fog, they may experience some pain in their joints, or they may just see these as small things. They may put that down to a bit of back pain or they're just not as sharp as they used to be. Um, what, what Can you give a bit more information on inflammation and what people can look out for and then how you treat that? Yeah, so again, it's something that, of course, we can run tests for, we can look at uh, high-sensitive CRP, we can look at IL-6, TNF-alpha, we can look at ratios of ferritin to transferrin. Um, there's, there's multiple ways that we can uh, attempt to quantify an inflammatory burden. But in most instances, it's actually much more relevant to ask ourselves, well, what, what may well be causing inflammation in this individual and how may that be affecting them? And so when it comes to inflammation, it's fascinating how in our profession, it does feel like it's being given the status of troublesome ghost. It's always lurking, we can't really see it, and there's not really any attempts to fly any connections other than eat an anti-inflammatory diet. Um, but again, this is where this personalized approach can be so helpful because what if that individual has undergone some compromises to the metabolism? As we've mentioned, there's, there's various reasons why that might be the case. They're in allostasis. Their body can totally maintain where it's at, but at a cost. Mm -hmm. And that cost is that now you're not investing in the digestive response in the same way. And maybe through alterations in the gut microbiome, maybe through alterations in bile activity and its impact on, on fat absorption and uh, subsequent secondary uh, responses in, in the calcium availability. I could go on. But there's a multiple number of ways that if you disturb the intestinal function, it won't do what it was meant to do. And one of those things was to deactivate and eliminate plant poisons. Now, all plants are poisonous. Uh, what's very useful and very helpful is that over the course of human evolution, we've actually been able to develop strategies to deal with pretty much all of these poisons. Yes, there's uh, exceptions. Uh, I'm not suggesting anybody go and eat some belladonna. Um, but yeah, in the main, we do a fantastic job of neutralizing, um, deactivating, and eliminating various plant poisons, be that phenols, be that oxalates, lectins, salicylates. There's a whole number of these, these plant poisons. And in many cases, they actually do a positive thing in the body in the same way that exercise has a positive impact on, on the body through hormesis, uh, which is the, the process where a little dose of stress 
um, in the case of plants, it's chemical stress. A little chemical poison induces a disproportionately strong antioxidant cell protective response. Great. It's training for your cell protection mechanisms. Um, but, but let's just say that, yeah, your intestinal function has been disturbed and maybe now you start absorbing oxalates, which was no, previously not an issue for you. Well, at that point, what's been fascinating to observe is hundreds of people I've worked with who've had oxalate issues. Some of them have joint pain. Some of them have inflammatory uh, skin issues. Some of them seem to have unrelenting anxiety regardless of what they do. Others might have disturbed um, urination, uh, they, they may well have cystitis issues. There's a whole number of ways that they seem to manifest. And what's, what's interesting, what's frustrating about them is, is how the, there never seems to be any reliable way that I could determine, well, what are they going to do in this one individual? You know, they, they may well cause um, a particular symptom in John and a totally different one in Julie, but the one pattern that's always bound together that population uh, of higher oxalate people, I almost always see sustained inflammatory responses that tend to flare up for several days at a time and then tend to just go into hiding for a few days and that cycle just continually repeats itself. Now that's just one uh, plant chemical that in theory shouldn't be a problem, that in theory humans don't have an issue with, but yet there's a lot of people that I see that do have an issue with those. And so that's where, yeah, considering doing some reading on, on oxalates or lectins or even doing a urinary test for, for oxalate content, there's various ways we can go about this would be a interesting thing, especially if there is any ongoing inflammatory concerns that just don't seem to respond or just continually call for ongoing medication, steroid creams, anti-inflammatory uh, medication. So, um, yeah, I, I would love to provide some sort of blueprint in regards to, if you get an inflammation, eat this diet. Um, but yeah, the key thing is, well, what issue in, do you particularly have? Equally, your gut microbiome may determine you might have issues with sulfur and suddenly you know, the sulfate reducing bacteria not only are producing gas that's uh, having an impact on mitochondrial function, hydrogen sulfide, but, but also in regards to its impact on sulfur itself, so from metabolites such as taurine and even on minerals that may well not be absorbed in the same way as those gases interact in the gut. So it is sometimes uh, something that can sound really complicated. And many times the, the details are complicated, but the concepts I think actually are simple in that it's actually sometimes staring us right in the face, the obvious things that we know are causing us stress. Mm. Uh, there's certain obvious things that we respond to. Um, and as we were mentioning uh, before we began, it's this, I would always look at any individual, let's first use questionnaires, test results, case history, and let's form a list of all of the obvious obstacles that are currently stopping their body from maintaining optimal function. And sometimes we just deal with the obvious ones and there's nothing more to do. And naturally the individuals I tend to work with, that is a rarity. And normally we're seeing them take a substantial step forward. And now based on how big was that improvement? How much further do they have to go? And what symptoms are lingering? That gives us a clue as to what non-obvious obstacles we're looking at. So I guess the way I would want to summarize that is to, you know, what, what can we take from that that's practical would be one, for a lot of people, it's actually going to be quite obvious. And the answer will almost always be found in the thing that's most inconvenient for you to change. Because if it was convenient, you would have changed it a while ago. 
if it's just not happening for you and if you've trialed some things that haven't generated any responses, the, I, I would definitely be keen to share the message that don't think for a second, well, hey, maybe that's just me. Maybe I'll always not be able to think clearly until midday. Maybe I'll always respond in this way to those particular foods. Maybe I'll just have to make do with uh, you know, these symptoms and oh, I'll just find some compensations. In those instances, definitely consider speaking to a professional who A, has got experience in that, but also can conduct a fair assessment of uh, what's often obvious things. Um, can't tell you how many times, um, and this actually, I was so guilty of this in the early years, we're looking at the, you know, the various methylation pathways. We're looking into um, various phosphorylation pathways involved in the, the cell signaling of the inflammatory cascade. We're getting super deep and cross-eyed. And turns out that person was eating 900 calories a day. <laughs> Sometimes it is really staring us in the face. Um, Sometimes, yeah, I, I always remember in the early days, I was taught a big lesson um, when an individual came to see me. Uh, she just wanted to lose weight. That was all she wanted to do. And uh, at the start, I asked her about sleep, digestion, any issues? Nah, nothing. Everything's normal. And then it got to the point where there was nothing here. I couldn't well, there's, there's no obvious lead. So I thought, well, let's just go through each area in turn. Asked her about her sleep. And I recall she said, well, I guess it's difficult to describe my sleep because, well, you know that pain you get in your side? And I said, no, tell me more about this pain. Yeah, you know when you roll over and you get that pain, that stabbing pain? I do no. She goes, well, well, I get this stabbing pain in my side. And so as soon as I start to drift off, I'll often start moving and I wake up. So I guess I've never really been asleep. For, and, I, and I asked her, well, how long has this been going on? Ah, oh, difficult to say. Um, well, are we talking like weeks, months? She says, well, um, my son's 22 now. So, so I guess um, about 21 years. Um, and so, yeah, she hadn't had any run uh, of sleep for more than several minutes in, in decades, but that was normal for her. Mm, so in that instance, yeah, I, I, that is an extreme example, but I wanted to share that because sometimes it is interesting that that, that reflection from somebody who, um, can ask the right questions can be valuable, but yeah, failing that, if in doubt, Get an organic acids test. It will set you back just under 200 pounds, but it will give you 75 different markers that will look at neurotransmitter balance, gut bacterial activity, detoxification capacity, responses to various food chemicals. It will look for nutrient status, indoor errors and metabolism. That's a lot of information, and I'm yet to see a single individual for whom there was nothing actionable on that test. But yeah, that plus maybe a full blood count, a bit of biochemistry, the usual stuff you might get from the GP. You're gonna get some information out of that. So if it's not obvious, don't just assume that this is your lot. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a great point um, to, to close on there. I think you know, that will help a lot of people is we start to think things are normal because they've become the new normal for us and we're sort of accepting. And it's not like you go from one day being in optimal health to suddenly becoming seriously ill, but it's these little markers and indicators along the way that if we're not paying attention to, we think, well, that's okay. As you say, maybe somebody's got a little bit of rosacea and they're like, oh, that was never there before, but now I get rosacea. I'll kind of mm -hmm. find a cream that might take it away or um, you know, these little, or now I have back pain or these little indicators that come up, um, you know, like we spoke about brain fog tiredness. So I think that's really useful. Um, you've obviously done a lot of testing and have a formidable amount of experience in this and you've collated a lot of information. Marek, please share, where can people find more about you? How can they get in touch with you? Okay. So my website is at www.marekdoyle.com. And uh, I've got a number of articles on there that 
practice and the individuals have resonated with the subjects I've discussed, they may well want to take a look at. I'm also on this uh, little website called Instagram now. So I'm at Marek Doyle Nutrition. Brilliant. I will link to those in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for coming on today and for sharing all of your knowledge and expertise. It's been wonderful to have you on. Well, thanks, Angela. And uh, hope that was useful. Very much so. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.